Guys, prior to the 2020 Christmas pandemic, if you'd ever heard somebody boldly proclaim that it was the worst Christmas ever, it was likely a child, because children haven't yet acquired the discipline to not say everything they feel or that comes in their mind. In fact, sometimes as adults, it's a discipline that we still need to be working on. Kids usually proclaim it's the worst Christmas ever, not because of a virus, not because of the weather, not because of the fruitcake or the eggnog. Kids, at least in my experience, they usually make the proclamation, well, when the gifts are done being open, they kind of look around just to make sure there's nothing left maybe tucked in behind the Christmas tree, and then it begins the dawn on them. They didn't get the, I don't know, they didn't get the St. Bernard puppy that they had asked Santa for this year. At Christmas time, What's become a little of a family tradition in our home is to spend some of the days before and after Christmas watching old family videos. So we pulled a few of them out this week and I actually had what I would describe as a retroactively proud dad moment. Christmas 2007. The kids, as usual, were waiting at the top of the stairs. The younger ones at this point were a little more excited than the older ones. And Caroline, my youngest, well, she was at the, the age of peak Christmas morning excitement. And so, just like every year, we had a little countdown, and then we released the hounds, and down they came, down the stairs, bounding into the living room. And for Caroline, who was five or six at the time, there was, underneath the tree, a brand new big girl bike waiting right there for her. And she stopped at that bike, oh, I don't know, for about three seconds to check it out, and honestly, I'm not sure it was a stop, it was more of a slowdown, as she walked right by it on her way to the dining room table to check out if Santa had eaten the cookies and milk she'd left, and more importantly at the time for her, to see if Santa had answered all the questions that she had left for him there on the dining room table. Caroline, as you can see, was always super inquisitive. So along with the predictable questions like, how did you get in my house since we don't have a fireplace? And did Rudolph like the carrot or the cookies I left him more? There was a question in there about a puppy. Caroline wanted a puppy for Christmas. I mean, what kid doesn't? But this was problematic because Caroline and her brothers and sister the year before had gotten a puppy the prior Christmas. And as adults, you and I know, Santa has a very strict one puppy per household rule, or at least he should. And so as Joan read what Santa had written to Carrie, and we're watching this on video, when she got to the part about Santa not bringing her a puppy this year, because he thought a puppy last, you know, he bought a puppy last year, we all waited kind of with bated breath for the whine, the cry, this is the worst Christmas ever. You could see Caroline paused when Joan read it. She processed for a second what had happened, and then she looked over at Joan and, and kind of whispered, could you please write back and tell him, it's okay, I understand. I was relieved again, 13 years later, watching this play out this week on video. Now again, let's not turn her into a martyr. There remained under the tree a brand new big girl bike placed amongst a pile of other gifts. But as silly as this sounds, that was a bit of a formative moment for a little girl. I didn't get the gift I wanted, but it's okay because maybe instead I got the gift I needed. Guys, welcome to our final installment of our Christmas series, Worst Christmas Ever? Question mark. 
where we're debunking the word on the street that this Christmas is going to be, this Christmas will be, this Christmas has to be the worst Christmas ever. I am here to declare to you that that is not true. Because here's the truth. This Christmas is actually the most authentic Christmas you and I are ever going to have. And it carries with it the potential for growth and change and transformation in our lives and our communities like no other before and likely, at least in our lifetimes, no other to come. Here's why. Because this Christmas is the Christmas most like that first Christmas that you and I are ever going to experience. Week one, we looked at the concept of of wrong timing at Christmas. God's timing for Christmas versus our thoughts on timing. Week two, we looked at the people and the circumstances from that first Christmas. It seemed to come, not just at the wrong time, but that first Christmas, it seemed to involve the wrong people and it occurred under all the wrong circumstances. It's just, in many ways, like this Christmas, which seemingly comes at the wrong time to the wrong people under the wrong circumstances. And yet, despite all of that, despite all of that, what happened that first Christmas, here we are, along with about 2.4 billion other people, about to remember and celebrate that first seemingly wrong, seemingly worst Christmas ever. This is the story of Christmas. It is a story, as we learned last week, of spiritual disequilibrium brought on by a divine intervention in the life of God's people. And so, now this week, I want to look at one last thing. It's not wrong time, wrong people, wrong circumstances. I want to look at the concept of wrong gift, because here's the truth. It's an understanding the gift of Christmas that ultimately, not all that much unlike a child, will help each of us determine this Christmas how good a Christmas it really is. Maybe put another way, this Christmas, did you get what you want or did you get what you need? And so jump back into the story with me. We've been looking at the birth narrative of Jesus as recorded by his student, Matthew. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament and he's only one of two of the writers that, uh, of, that record the details of the birth of Jesus. The other is the first century physician, Luke. Matthew, you may remember now, he was a Jewish man by birth, but a traitor to his fellow Israelites um, because he was a tax collector by trade. Who, for who? For, for the Roman Empire, which was ruling his people by threat and violence at the time. And yet, despite all of that, it was Jesus who some 30 years removed from the manger calls Matthew, quite to the shock and frustration of his fellow countrymen, to be one of his first disciples. And Matthew, this same Matthew, is writing his account of Jesus' life, and he's writing it as a record for his people, his fellow Jews. And so that's why he starts with not Mary and Joseph and wise men, but with this genealogy of the people of Israel. And believe it or not, that genealogy is very important because it helps to bring some context to the meaning of the gift of Christmas. I want to show you what I mean. Matthew, first book in the New Testament, first chapter, first verse. Introductory verse to the entire New Testament. Matthew writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word there, guys, that the translators translated as genealogy, that word in the Greek, which is what this was originally written in, is the word genesis, or as we say in English, genesis. 
So Matthew says he begins this New Testament. This is the genesis of Jesus. And then he goes into that genesis, looking through the generations in Israel. We looked at that week one. But then when verse 18, when he gets done with that genealogy, this is what he says. Quote, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now check this out. The word that the translators use here as birth, well, when Matthew wrote it in the Greek, guess what word he uses there again? Genesis. This is the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So Matthew is making sure that his Jewish audience understands he's telling them a Genesis story. And that's about to get even more clear. He writes next, Matthew, that his mother, Jesus' mother Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to write that Joseph was told by an angel that what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. So now stay with me here for a, for a minute. Matthew's now telling his Jewish audience twice that this baby is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew twice is making sure that his Jewish audience understands that there is a divine agent of creation for this new life. So he begins by telling us and his audience twice, this is a Genesis story. This is a Genesis story. And then twice that the Holy Spirit is in this Genesis story working to create and sustain life where otherwise there would be no life. Which to his audience, who is steeped in the knowledge of the Torah, beginning with the book of Genesis, this would have started to sound a little familiar. Why? Well, Jump with me now. Let's move from the very first page of the New Testament to the very first page of the Old Testament, the first page in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And in the midst, think about this, in the midst of a place where there is no life, where things are formless and empty and dark, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Guys, I believe that Matthew is telling his audience that this story of Jesus is the story of another Genesis, a new beginning, another creation story about the generation of new life in a place where there was currently no life. And guys, this is a big deal. The Christmas story is the story of a new creation, a new genesis of life where the Holy Spirit comes again and is once again involved in bringing light and life to a place, a land, a people of darkness and death. This is, in a sense, the beginning of the unwrapping of the gift of Christmas. So Matthew goes on. He says, the angel comes to Joseph and tells Joseph in a dream that Mary will give birth to a son and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus. Very specific instructions regarding what this child, conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, that's going to bring about a new genesis, what that child's to be called. In fact, Mary, as Luke records it, was also told that the baby's name, very specifically, was to be Jesus. Why? Why was it so important that the baby's name be Jesus? Well, to start with, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, 
that's not really what they were to name the baby. The name Jesus is a Latin translation from a Greek word for the Hebrew name Yehoshua, Yehoshua. They were to name the baby Yehoshua, which in Israel was not an uncommon name. It was a name over time, in fact, that was so common it got shortened to Yeshua. So Jesus and Nazareth, growing up on the streets, his buddies, his friends, they would not have said, hey, here comes Jesus. Jesus, do you want to play some catch? They would have said, here comes Yeshua. I actually heard one speaker this week laughing about this, going, maybe this is the reason that for so many of us, so many, so many of our prayers seemingly go unanswered. It's because we keep mispronouncing the name of God's one and only son. And so what's the point? Well, here's the point. The point is that the reason the name was not uncommon in Israel is that the name, Yahashua, is the name that translated into English is the name Joshua. You shall call him, Mary and Joseph are told, Joshua. And that name in Israel carried with it huge significance. That's why it was so common, because in Israel's history, Joshua is a big deal. Joshua was their leader after the death of Moses. It was Joshua who, who leads the defeated Israelites into the promised land. It was Joshua who led the fight and the defeat of the Canaanites. It was Joshua, and some of you know the story. If you grew up in church, maybe as a little kid, that marched around the walls of Jericho and took the city when the walls came down. Joshua is a warrior. Joshua is a military man. Joshua is a warrior and a king who delivered his people from all of their oppressors. And so now, jump into the story. Luke and Matthew, who both focus on very different parts of the birth narrative, yet they both write that the angels told Mary and Joseph they're to name this child conceived by the Holy Spirit, Yahashua, Joshua. And so what's the angel telling them? What message would they be getting by that? That this long-awaited for Messiah, the one that Israel had been waiting for, the long-promised king who would set his people free from their oppressors and bring a new life to dead people was going to be their little boy. I mean, think about Joseph, right? The angel says, she shall give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because, well, Joseph... Probably didn't need a because. Joseph thinks he, I'm sure, thinks he knows the because. Everybody in Israel would know the because. Why? Because they're thinking about what we learned week one. Because Israel's been destroyed time and time and time again. Both the northern and southern kingdoms have been trampled over the centuries by Assyria and Babylon. And now they're under Roman oppression. See, Joseph and all of Israel knew why you would name him Jesus, Joshua. They understood the because, because Israel needs right now more than anything else, at least they thought, a warrior king that would come and defeat their greatest threat and enemy. At that time and in that moment, they would have assumed that that was Rome. The angel goes on. Because he will save his people from, and again, Joseph and Mary are going, yeah, we know. They're going to save us from Rome, just like Joshua saved his people from the Canaanites. And not just Rome. He's going to save his people from obliteration and scatter and, and the indignity of being the joke of the first century world. 
It had been 2,000 years since God made the promise to Abraham that he would make of his family, this people Israel, a great nation that would bless the whole world. They, like all of Israel who'd been waiting for two millennia, they know what this promised warrior or king will do and who, will sa- who he will save them from, which is what makes what comes next so... Well, I guess if we were gonna be honest and enter the story, maybe from the perspective of Joseph and Mary at that moment, maybe what, maybe what comes next was a little disappointing because he's gonna save his people from, from their sins. As I was studying that this week, I couldn't help but think of those videos that you can find on YouTube of parents, and it's kind of cruel, and it's also kind of funny, Parents who wrap up for their kids as presents, things like broccoli or toilet paper, and the kids are super excited. When they get the present, they tear open the gift and they find out it's something they definitely don't want, and they have no concept for understanding its need. You see, in the first century, that first Christmas, it seemingly it came not just at the wrong time and under the wrong circumstances, but for everyone who had waited like children on top of the stairs on Christmas morning, it seemingly came with the wrong gift. Joseph, Mary, and all of Israel was not looking for saving from their sins. They were looking to be saved from Rome. Not only that, they didn't actually perceive that their sin was something they needed saving from. Why? Because these are people of the old covenant. There was an entire sacrificial temple system in place where people could go to the temple. And sure, it was a pain, and it was expensive, and it it was repeated, but they had, at least they thought, a way already to deal with the problem of sin. But again, here is something Matthew's audience might have caught that you and I, well, we miss. Remember now, he's telling us that this is the story. Jesus' story is the story of a new Genesis where the Holy Spirit comes once again and brings new life and order out of chaos and darkness and death. That first Genesis, when the Spirit participated in the first creation, in that first Genesis, humans were created, and many of you know that, They were created in the image of God. They were created to reflect the image and glory of God, his holiness and his goodness. They were were to reflect it out into the world. They were created to walk with God, to trust in God, and and to abide by his definition of right and wrong, and and to rule with God by reflecting and extending his goodness and and design to all of creation as they loved him and they loved others. and, and, And this would go on and on as they were fruitful and multiplied. That's the meaning behind the first Genesis. How'd that go? Well, if you know anything about the Bible, the answer is it, it, it didn't go all that well. It was an epic fail. That, uh, that first Adam, he fails miserably at this, and, and sin enters the world, and, 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 and it enters the human heart. Havoc and hatred reign for generations. Until God, once again, intercedes. And again, this is why Matthew has this genealogy to highlight Israel's history. And you follow the genealogy, right? Now God comes to a man named Abraham and tells him that his family, which would become the people of Israel, would be blessed by God and that they now would be a solution to this sin problem. And so God leads this nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land taken by Joshua 
And he gives them the Torah, a set of divine laws that would differentiate them from all the other nations on earth and would provide for them a, a new moral code of right and wrong, which, which if they followed, would have them become something of a, a new kind of humanity, a, a people of goodness and light for all of the nations to see. And then, when they saw it, maybe those nations would return to God because of the witness of Israel. How does the witness of Israel to the nations of the world go? Well, if you know Israel's story, it goes about as well as Adam and Eve's story did. Israel fails repeatedly, like over and over and over. They're anything but a, but a blessing. They're anything but a new humanity or a light for the nations. And so Matthew continues down this lineage he, he continues to, to lay out God's attempt at rescue. He calls out, God calls out of Israel a, a line of kings from the line of David. And, and David and all these kings, well, what they're going to do is they're going to represent God to his people. And, and, and the people of Israel, they're going, to, they're going to teach them to follow the commands of the Torah and to worship God in holiness and truth. And as we know, David, along with this line of kings, they don't do real well either. Because they can't overcome their own sin issues and they fail miserably too. And it's their final failure that led to this breaking up of the nation of Israel, their captivity in other nations, and their occupation by their latest oppressor, Rome. This is what Matthew is laying out in this genealogy, his first Genesis. And I think what Matthew's trying to show his people and some of us 2,000 years later, is that Israel's problem, hear me on this now, Israel's problem was not Roman oppression. Roman oppression was like a fever to a cold. The fever isn't the problem, it's indicative of a deeper issue. Rome was not Israel's problem. Sin was Israel's problem. And so this new Joshua, Matthew's telling us, wasn't coming to save people from Rome. In fact, if he had, in some short amount of time later, there would be another Rome. There would be another oppressor. This Joshua was coming to save his people from their real problem, their root problem. He was coming to save his people, to, like Joshua, deliver his people from their greatest oppressor, sin. Yeshua was coming to set his free people free, to deliver them all right, but not from Rome from their greatest enemy, sin. Now, when the scriptures, when they speak of sin, the word sin means at its core uh, this concept of, of missing the mark. God has laid out a mark. He, he's, he's prescribed a way, a plan, a divine purpose. You see that in the genealogy Matthew lays out. And over time, and time and time again, we've repeatedly missed it. What Matthew wants his audience to know, what Matthew wants you to know is Jesus is coming to save his people. He's coming to save you and I from this consistent failure and all of its consequences. This is the everlasting, ever-present, continually offered gift of Christmas. And here's what I want you to see. This Christmas, your circumstances, not unlike Israel's that first Christmas, your circumstances even if they include a pandemic, which I have to tell you, you know, I know it's not good, but it pales in comparison to being under Roman oppression. 
Your circumstances this Christmas should in no way diminish this Christmas gift, the joy that you could have and should have over this gift. But we don't. We don't. And, and you know why? It's because our, our problem is that we rarely ever think about the gift at Christmas time. And we think about gifts, we just don't think about that gift. We think about manger scenes and, and stars and wise men and camels. We, we think of, I mean, let's be honest, right? When somebody speaks of Christmas, what do we think about? Holiday memories and excited, wide-eyed children, family gatherings, neighborhood cookie exchanges. And because that's what we associate with Christmas, of course our joy could be dis- diminished this Christmas because those things are all impacted by a pandemic. But those are not the gift of Christmas. You see, not unlike uh, uh, an ill-informed child, we often want the wrong gifts. And I think it's because perhaps like Joseph and Mary, we don't understand our real need, our real problem. And so there's two things I want you to see this Christmas about this Christmas gift. The first is this. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and not just to forgive his people of their sins. And I don't want to minimize the forgiveness of our sins. Hear me on that now. Jesus on the cross paid a very steep price. He, he paid the debt that we owed for our sins. But forgiveness is just a part. This is how great the gift of Christmas is. Forgiveness is just a part of the gift because we're not just forgiven of our sins. What Matthew is telling us is that we are saved from them. This new Joshua has come to set you and I free from an enemy that we were previously powerless over. We're being offered to be set free from the power of sin in our lives. Paul wrote to the church in Rome that because of this Christmas gift, we should no longer be slaves to sin. Slaves. What's worse, right, than being a slave in in Egypt or Rome or Greece or Babylon? It's being a slave to the internal workings and destruction of sin. If you're a slave, it means that, that someone, something is in authority over you. Something has power over you. He goes on, therefore, Paul writes, do not let sin reign. Again, Who reigns? Kings reign. Powers reign. Authorities reign. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. For sin shall no longer be your master. Paul's saying something that he was taught by Jesus himself. Remember when they dragged the woman caught in adultery um, before Jesus because all of the men of the law wanted to stone her? And Jesus, as some of you remember, he told them, that's fine, you can carry on with that, but let those of you without sin cast the first stone. Many of you know the story, they they put their their stones down, they walk away. Then Jesus does two very important things. First, he forgives her. Remember what he said? Neither do I condemn you. But then he tells her something even more important. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, this is the gift of Christmas. And if you see it and if you get it, your circumstances this year cannot, I am telling you, they cannot remove your joy this Christmas. 
Jesus, he comes like Joshua, this warrior king. That's why Matthew records Jesus saying, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. This new Joshua has come to put a sword to bring death to the power of sin in your life. You have been set free, in a sense, violently, from the power of sin. Sin no longer needs to reign in your life. You no longer need to be the puppet of this dictator in your life. Yeshua has come to deliver you from all of the failures of your past and to set you free. That's the story of Christmas. Do you know why you need a savior? Because just like Israel, you and I can't save ourselves. That, in a sense, is the damning truth of the Christmas story. We needed a Joshua. Our best efforts weren't going to be enough. There is, or there was, for some of you that have accepted this gift, a force in your life that was too powerful for you to overcome. Now, here's what I know this morning. Some of you know what the victory over sin in your life looks at. Looks like some of you have accepted this gift. Some of you know what it's like to be freed from addiction and lust and jealousy, anger, gluttony, greed, anger and pride. You know the mess these things were making of your old life, your family, your marriage, your kids, our town, our church, our country. Some of you know you were once lost, but now you're found. You were once blind, but, but some of you, now you see. That's the gift of Christmas. And like, seriously, what, what, what did you want, an Xbox? Jesus came to set you free from being a slave to sin. You now have the ability, you now have the power to say no, to be released from the power of sin. A pandemic does not have the ability to squash the joy a free man feels when a knife falls on his oppressor. Now, second thing about this gift. That all sounds great, but where does this power come from? Well, here's the thing about sin. Paul puts it clearer than anybody. You've probably seen this before. For the wages of sin is death. Because sin does not just enslave people. It does for a while. But sin eventually kills people. It kills everything good in your life. It brings, I mean, you know what it brings. It brings, well, it brings death and darkness and chaos. But here's what Matthew wants you to see this Christmas that because of that first Christmas, there is a new Genesis story being played out. There's a new beginning underway. The Spirit of God has once again come and brought life and order and light to a dark, dead, and chaotic world. There is a new creation springing to life all around you, and this Christmas, like that first Christmas, you're invited to be a part of that. That's the gift of Christmas. I mean, do, do you get it? Do you see it? 
the power that's available to overcome these things in your life, Jesus quite famously put it this way, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. A new source of life, a new genesis for you. Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. This is why he would write to the Ephesians, you should put on the new self created to be like God. Created to be like God. It's the gift of being who it was we were created to be back in the first Genesis. We get a shot, we get a second chance in the new Genesis. Men and friends, listen to me. You've been given a great gift. You haven't just been forgiven of your sins. And I'm not making light of that. But you've been saved from them and their power by a new Joshua, Yeshua, who has come to bring you, to create within you a new life, which is the power by which you can live as free people again, no longer a slave to fear, anxiety, greed, jealousy, worry, comparison, anger, pride. This Christmas... All that's left for you, I guess it's just like any other gift, all that's left for you is to, to unwrap this and, and accept it, to, to receive it, to take it. I mean, sure, you could, you could leave it right there and go and look around the back of the tree, check out some other options, hope that maybe there's something else back there. You can keep looking for other things. You can keep asking God for other things. But here's the truth. You don't need any of those things. You might even get some of them. But the story of Christmas is that into your life will always come another Rome. You see, this Christmas, this Christmas of disequilibrium and divine interruption, this Christmas, maybe for the first time, maybe for some of you for the purpose of renewal. This Christmas, accept the gift. Receive it unto yourself. Get alone. Maybe get on your knees. Close your eyes. Quiet your heart. This Christmas for the first time, or maybe in newness of mind and spirit, accept the gift of Christ at Christmas. I know maybe it's not what you were hoping for. I know it's probably not exactly what you wanted. And so does God. That's okay. But boy, it sure is what you need. Merry Christmas, Mendham Hills Community Church. Worst Christmas ever? I don't think so. You've been given a great gift.